Hello and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast, bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Omaha Bar Association Bar Talk Podcast. I am Dave Summers, Omaha Bar Association Executive Director. It is Field Day 2019. This is where the the podcast began with Judge Strum a few years ago. So I think we're even at the same table. I'm here with Patrick Runge. He is past Omaha Barrister's President, very important title, and he is also judge on two different courts. Tribal courts. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of us have a passing understanding of uh, what we had to understand for the bar uh, exam, but it's a pretty small community of tribal court lawyers in Nebraska and regionally, right? It's it is. I mean, you have. I think there's a there's a pretty small group of people who practice in tribal court regularly, and then there's a little bigger concentric circle of attorneys who are aware of some of the issues that are raised in a tribal court setting, because it touches a number of different things. There's there's criminal law areas where it affects things. There's civil law where it affects things. There's regulatory. I mean, the intersection of tribal state and federal law and the complexities that that creates really has the potential to touch a whole bunch of different areas. And mm-hmm. There are some people who do a lot of work with it. I didn't even talk about the fact that any practitioner in juvenile court is going to be super duper familiar with the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is part of the whole mix of tribal, state, and federal interactions, how the law works together. Yeah. If we can talk a little bit more, dive a little deeper on the intersection between state, um, tribal, and federal law, can you give us the 32,000 foot perspective on what happens if it's if it's dealing with somebody off um, off the tribal lands, on the tribal lands, um, you know, run us through a few, few scenarios. Well, it might be helpful just to kind of take the, the, the Native American law class that I teach and sort of condense it down. So we'll give sure. you sort of the, Professor the, the real I love it. short yep. the short answer. Yeah. Um, tribes, Native nations were here before the foundation of the United States. All of those uh, Native nations had their own governments, their own systems, their own structures. Uh, The English colonists arrived, and the way the law was set up in terms of how to interact with and how to handle the tribes, because when when the colonists arrived, the tribes were actually in a much stronger position, and it was the colonists that needed help from the tribes. Um, as the English, co- English uh, colonists, eventually, which eventually became the United States, became more powerful, then that power dynamic changed. So right. there was a set of three Supreme Court decisions right at the start of the case, the Mar- what's called the Marshall Trilogy, mm-hmm. which sort of set the foundation for tribal law, which referred to tribes as domestic dependent nations. So they're still nations. They still retain all elements of sovereignty that aren't taken by the federal government, which basically means by Congress. Right. So Congress could, if it chose to, just remove tribal sovereignty, period, writ large. But they have chosen not to do that. And until and unless Congress does that, tribes have full authority to act in the sovereignty that they possessed before the United States arrived. Okay. So... Um, 
So the question, like, for example, the question is, can a tribe punish a non-native in a criminal fashion? Sure. Um, for a significant period of time, that the question to that answer was yes. Then the Supreme Court uh, came in and made a and decided, in what's kind of a turning point case in the area, uh, decided that executing or exercising criminal jurisdiction over non-natives was inconsistent with the tribe's domestic status and or dependent status, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And so, as a result, tribes, the Supreme Court said, tribes did not have jurisdiction to punish non-natives criminally. When was this? It was 1962, early 60s. Okay. Um, I should remember that, but I do not. Before we became the criminalizing, punishing state that we are today, uh, right? I mean, correct. there, there weren't nearly as many people incarcerated or percentage of population. So. Certainly before kind of the mass incarceration area right. of, of, the, of the 80s and the early 90s. Right. So that decision was made. There was there was about five years of, of conflict in terms of whether or not that applied to members or not members. In other words, if one mm -hmm. tribe could criminally punish another tribe's uh, oh, members, sure. which there's a separate fight about that. Um, Congress then actually took steps to expand tribal sovereignty um, in the most recent reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act mm -hmm. because because here's the problem when you have you have a you have a tribal area of physical area that has to be governed. If the local county sheriff, particularly in larger like places like South Dakota and other places where the, the tribal area is much larger geographically, right. you're asking local law enforcement to govern and to police in areas where their political structure isn't really super powerful. So there's not a significant incentive for non-native policing to happen on native areas mm. and that's that's been a consistent struggle with in the in the conflict between tribal and state okay. uh and that the conflict between tribal and state authority really sort of undergirds the whole history right. i mean one of the one of the three marshall trilogy cases was the state of georgia basically trying to use its state authority to invalidate tribal sovereignty and it was the Supreme Court saying, no, states do not have the authority to do that because tribes retain their sovereignty. And it's only Congress that has the authority to decide whether or not that goes or stays. Right, right. So one of the areas in which it has been and continues to be a huge problem is uh, is in the area of domestic violence, where um, you know resources for combating domestic violence in general are at best not 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 probably the way they should be mm -hmm. and it's a significant it's it's a particularly significant problem in tribal areas right so one of the things that congress did in reauthorizing the violence against women act was it authorized um non-native uh it authorized tribal courts to criminally prosecute non-native offenders if there were certain additional due process requirements that tribes tribal courts met yeah. that would be equivalent to what they would receive in uh in a state court setting so you had you had the circumstance where the supreme court shrunk tribal sovereignty in terms of its ability <laughs> to act and congress actually expanded it and this yeah. is it's 2013 i believe and that's that's been upheld by the courts yep yeah, yeah it's 
so it's a really interesting area right now because there are there's two cases that are are bubbling their way through and uh, one's at the Supreme Court right now and one will be shortly that are really going to go a long way towards defining the area. Um, one case was supposed to be decided this term, Carpenter versus Murphy. Okay. It was uh, it was a murder in Oklahoma. And the question is whether or not the murder occurred on tribal land. Because if the murder occurred on tribal land, the question of who would have the authority, basically if the murder occurred on tribal land because uh, the murderer was Native American, it would remove from the state of Oklahoma the ability to prosecute the individual and ultimately Definitely. apply the death penalty. Right. Um, but in order for the tribal for for that tribal land to be upheld, the result of it will be that a pretty good chunk, uh, a large chunk of the state of Oklahoma, including a good chunk of like the city of Tulsa, will be considered to be within tribal land. Oh. So everybody Ooh. freak out. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Oklahomans, if you're listening to the podcast right now, you may want to follow what's going on with that oh, case. Oh, oh, I think they're aware. <laughs> the, what's, what's really fascinating is the, the, the case that really, I mean, that's what's called a uh, disestablishment case. The question is whether or not what initially was considered a reservation loses its reservation status. Mm -hmm. And the most recent case that made a determination about that was a, the case regarding Pender, Nebraska. Okay. That was three or four years ago where the Supreme Court unanimously decided that um, fundamentally what the Supreme Court decided in that case was that the you had to have some explicit act of Congress to disestablish a uh, reservation. You okay. couldn't do it by implication. You couldn't do it just because, well, nobody's done anything with it and it doesn't really look like Indian ground and no, they haven't exercised any authority. So at some point in time, it's almost like a latches argument. You, right. you don't use it, you lose it. Right. And administrative agencies take it over. It's not necessarily an act of Congress or something like that. It's not even an, I mean, no. it's not even really an administration question. It's just the, the argument had always been it was it was kind of a three prong test. It was did Congress explicitly diminish the reservation? Or did it say this reservation no longer exists? Mm -hmm. Did it implicitly uh, uh, diminish the reservation by taking actions which would have had to have diminished the res reservation, or okay. had the area the languages lost its Indian character? That oh, was wow. right. That was the initial. I mean, that was the kind of the initial set of tests in mm. terms of whether or not the 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 reservation stuck around, uh, whether it continued to be considered a reservation, considered to, continued to consider to be Indian country. Yeah. What Parker said was that third set that. Right. Well, you couldn't use it by itself. You had to. You said, okay, that can be evidence that can help to buttress right. the arguments about what Congress did, but you can't take the implied what's happened to the land by itself. Yeah, a lesser, lesser argument. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And uh, so, yeah. so it will be interesting. So Carpenter versus Murphy was set to be decided this term. Yeah. What happened there? The Supreme Court actually basically said, we're going to punt and hear it next year. So they, <laughs> they ordered it to be re-argued. Which is because they have so many cases going on. Right they now. do so much. Well, that's kind of the question: is it <laughs> is it 
did they just run out of time because they were doing a whole bunch of other stuff? You know, they yeah, had the, they the had district the, ring. Well, they had the voting rights case. They had the, you know, they they, they had a the, the census case that came. So sure. is it was it simply that they ran out of time, or did they want to hear more arguments? The they did orga- order additional briefing on the case with regards to what the effect of leaving the or leaving right. the reservation area. In other words ruling in favor of the tribes they ordered additional briefing on it which happened after oral argument so the justices didn't get to question the attorneys about that issue right so you know in reading the tea leaves is that okay well is that why they ordered it or was it just eh, we ran out of time <laughs> then, who knows because you know that's they're the they're the oracle they're the oracles which we, which with we define what the law will be so, so we we really dove into it but let's let's back up here patrick so where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Uh, when'd you get out? Uh, I'm from Omaha. Huh. I am a Creighton Law graduate, uh, class of 94. Uh, I opened, when I got out of law school, I opened up uh, my own shop, fundamentally because didn't find anybody that was going to... Some of the best of us, that happens. That's right. I get that. That's right. So so I had a tiny little closet office in the center mall, 42nd Center, <laughs> and I, I took... No Native American law classes right. in school. I'm not 100% certain there were Native American law classes in '94, but even if they were, I didn't take them. So this was not on my radar screen. Um, so I'm kind of taking a few cases uh, here and there. And one of the opposing counsel in one of the first cases I had, she'd been an attorney for a while, and we kind of became friends a little bit. The divorce case we had sort of settled itself out. The I lost track of my client. She lost track of her client. So we sort of figured they worked things out. <laughs> but she and I kind of chatted for a while. And she yep. was she took an interest in me, which was awfully sweet. And then we decided, okay, we're going to just dismiss this case because who knows where our clients are. So I get a call about a, two, three months later, and it's from the Winnebago Tribal Court. And they say, would you like to take an appointment case as a criminal defense attorney? that point it was either say i could take the case or stay in my office and play panzer general so i decided <laughs> i'll go for taking the case well as it turns out that attorney was the public defender in the tribal court okay uh it was barb kinney and so she remembered me and remembered that i was looking for work so i started taking some appointment cases barb eventually went from being public defender to being judge. Mm -hmm. And so my partner at the time, Steve Chase and I applied and became public defender. Oh, Steve Chase was your partner. Okay. Steve and I worked together for quite a while. It was six or so. It was close to 10 years, I think. Okay. Um, So Steve and I worked, uh, we were public defenders up in Winnebago. We actually did some work for the Omaha Tribal Court as well. Um, And we did that for a few years. And then um, we ended up sort of one of the judicial, there's two judges in Winnebago at the time, one of those positions became available. Um, and so Steve and I actually worked as kind of shared the position for a little while. And then Steve took a job with the state and I right. stayed there. And I've been, been on the bench in Winnebago since 2003, almost entirely by accident. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere along the way, you picked up a second? I did. So uh, I, as of right now, I'm the chief judge of the Winnebago Tribal Court. I've been there since 03. I did... The Ponca Tribal Court has a, um, they had their current judge at 
this was about 2010, yeah. had there was a conflict of interest. She couldn't take a case. And so I did just a single case for them. And so that's kind of how I got to know them. And then their chief judge position opened up in 2014, and I applied for that position. I was firmly convinced that I wasn't going to get the position after the interview because I sat down with the vice chairman. And the Ponkas are a little different than the the other three tribes in the state of Nebraska because they do not have a reservation. Okay. Um, the Ponkas were, in the 50s, there's been different eras of po- federal policy in terms of how the federal government looks to, to treat or work with Native Americans. We're currently in what's called the self-determination era, which is where federal policy is supposed to assist tribes to or their own self-determination. Makes sense. Prior to that, it was all the policies were at some level assimilation policies. Right. Sometimes they were more explicitly assimilation policies. Sometimes they were less explicitly, but that's all the policy. And in the 50s, uh, you had what was called the termination era. And the concept behind the termination era was that right now, the federal government has what's called this trust relationship with tribes, and that's going all the way back to the Marshall Trilogy, where federal government has a trust obligation to care for and assist Native Americans and tribes, tribes and tribal members. Okay. In the termination era, the policy was it would be better for everybody if rather than having this special relationship we just kind of treated them like every other citizen which fits with the time in terms of what they were looking at but what it also allowed the federal government to do is discontinue the support and the dollars that would be flowing in to provide assistance right um so they would be there were a number of tribes that were terminated which what that specifically means is that the federal government's relationship with that particular tribe no longer was in place. And the Poncas were one of the tribes that were terminated. They were reestablished in the 90s. Okay. But one of kind of the conditions of reestablishment was that they would not have a reservation per se. So the Poncas have what are called service areas. So there's a number of, and it's defined in federal statute, Mm -hmm. there are specific counties in Nebraska and a couple in Iowa and South Dakota where the Poncas can act and provide services for their members. So like you can mm-hmm. have um, you can have an Indian Health Service hospital or a clinic and that acts the same way as if it would be on a reservation. Sure. So in the interview, Vice Chairman asked me, so are service areas considered Indian country for purposes of the federal statute? Because there's a federal statute right. that has three tests in terms of what Indian country was. And I got that question. I was like, oh, crap. (laughs) And so I start just kind of going through, okay, well, here's the three tests. And I start talking my way through it. And I'm sure I was started to talk faster. And you can't see this because it's a podcast, but I started even talking with my hands more than I normally did. I looked like Harry Potter casting a spell. And as as I'm talking, I'm thinking, oh, I blew this interview on the first question. And so I kind of keep trying to go and I'm trying to get to an answer yeah. and I'm not getting there. Yeah. And after what seemed like a thousand years, but was probably only about five minutes or so, he finally just kind of holds his hand up and says, 
it's okay if we don't know either. <laughs> you could have led with that. You, know. you could have predicated a question. <laughs> I sort of feel like it might have been the world's most genius interview question because it was like, you know, it's it's the opposite of the lawyer rule. Ask a right. question you don't know the answer to. Right. I'm going to ask a question there probably isn't an answer to and see what you do with it. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned your teaching. Is that um, over at Creighton Law as well? Yes, they offer a Native American law class every other uh, fall semester. So okay. in 2020, I'll be uh, I'll be back in the saddle uh, teaching. I got to ask the question that everybody's wondering. Uh, how many hours are there in the day for you? Because uh, for, for us normal people, there's only 24 hours. And it seems like you may, may have more than 24 hours that you're dealing with. Well, I'm here at field day playing golf, yeah. so I must find some. <laughs> It's a, yeah. it's a, it's, it's a challenge because the, I'm in Winnebago usually two days a week. Mm. Um, the Poncas, we have one day a month because the Poncas from a population standpoint are much smaller. Right. And because there's no reservation, there's no criminal jurisdiction. Sure. So we don't have like in Winnebago, we have certain times where we have to hear things because, um, you know, we've got people in jail. We have to have, we have to provide them with due process. We have to make sure that they get arraigned and, and this very similar time constraints that right. federal and state have. Poncas, we hear cases have like the cattle call hearings once a month. Right. And then we end up like setting other hearings throughout the month, either, you know, I like guess we have a trial that we have to do that's going to take more time than what a cattle call would be, then we'll set it. There's one, you know, we issue protection orders through the Ponca tribe. And um, if there's a contest to the protection order, the statute has certain time, like you've got 30 days, you have to have a hearing within 30 days. Right. If, the, if the protection order awards custody, it has to be within 15 days. So uh, the Ruth Ann Gallup, who's the court administrator for the Ponca, she's got access to my calendar and she'll just say, okay, we need to have this hearing. You have this date open and we'll do it. Is, is domestic the largest um, part of the docket? Almost, yeah, that's, I would say, 90% of Ponca docket is guardianships or dissolutions or um, sometimes you'll have some civil contests in terms of monetary. Right. One of the first cases I had in Ponca was a conflict about who owned the ashes of an a individual who had passed away, wow. which was really fascinating uh, yeah <laughs> um I, you know i i that was i that was like you know day two i was like oh okay this will be interesting it, and, and it really was it was a it was fun to do the research and kind of do the work to get to the answer but and that's and it really kind of does highlight that the purpose of a tribal court is it's an it's an exercise of sovereignty which means a nation a group of peoples able to make decisions for and about themselves right and that really is you know that 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 that, that's the reason for sovereignty i mean if you think about it that's you know that's what state sovereignty is you 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 don't want to have somebody that's not your citizenry making decisions about you and that's particularly true in a tribal setting when for the vast majority of history of the country federal policy has at one way or another worked towards the 
either the destruction or the removal of these separate sovereign entities, these separate sovereign governments, they're going to be particularly fiercely guarding their own sovereignty, their own ability to make decisions for themselves. Yeah. And it sounds like you found your calling. You've, you've really, um, through this happenstance mm-hmm. situation, you've, you, this is, this is what you are. This is what you do. This is your, it is, I, this is, I, I am extraordinarily fortunate to have utterly stumbled into this area and to have the opportunity to, to, to work for these tribes and be able to, to, to do what I do. I'm, I'm very fortunate. It's a fascinating area. The people that I work with are amazing. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's, yeah. it's intellectually stimulating. Um, it's meaningful. Um, it's just, it's really fun. It's just a lot of wind chill time. <laughs> exactly. Well, and you know, there are people listening that um, may be getting an appointment here or, or maybe um, trying to, to figure out more. Should they audit your class in, in 2020? Should they reach out to you? You probably have some materials that you could give them. And Well, um, there's a couple of things. Um, anybody who wants to audit the class that, you know, Absolutely I don't even know if Creighton allows that or if, if it's been a thing that people have done. I always talk about it. I, you know, I'm, I'm in the law school because that's where our offices are, but sure. I, I don't know if that's something. I mean, you have to check, check with Creighton and the professor first. But yeah. So um, there's a couple things. Um, one of the things that I've been working on for quite some time and has finally gotten a little bit of traction is um, a number of other states that have significant tribal populations have through their court systems, a formalized tribal state collaboration mechanism. Mm -hmm. Minnesota has that. New Mexico has that. California has that. Nebraska really doesn't. And we're working through, I've been sitting on the Nebraska Supreme Court Commission on Children of the Courts for a long time. And through that entity, we are setting up and formalizing what would be a Nebraska version of that. And we're still kind of trying to figure out exactly what that'll look like. We're having a listening tour in the fall where we're going to go to some spots throughout the state that will just kind of get a chance to talk to people to say, you know, we're looking right now to form, have a formalized group to talk about how tribal governments, state governments and federal government and federal governments can, can work together. Um, and there's, you know, how you avoid having competing, conflicting jurisdictional claims. Right. Theoretically, in, you know, at least with Winnebago's and the Omaha's, you could have a tribal court and a state court both fully and completely exercise jurisdiction over, say, a custody proceeding. Mm-hmm. That would be a problem. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, how do you set up a protocol to make sure that there's an orderly and predictable way to resolve those. Um, how do you make sure that protection orders between states and tribes get enforced correctly? How do you uh, how do you enforce child support orders between tribes and states? You know, any number of those different things. Those are issues that this collaboration forum is intended to is intended to address. And part of that is if you have someone who I have a tribal court issue. I have never seen this before. I have no idea what this means. Here's a resource where you can go to. Um, Yeah, the Supreme Court should definitely be all over that. They are. And and 
I'd worked for, you know, five or six years to try to get something going, which will tell exactly the kind of juice I have nothing. <laughs> um, Chief Justice Havikin in his, he, he does kind of tours of different areas of the states and his tour of Northeast Nebraska, he decided he wanted to make this a, one of his focuses. And so we had a meeting in Sioux City where he was able to convene a room full of tribe, tribal state and federal stakeholders. And this came out of that. Good. So Justice Havikin really deserves a lot of credit for, um, having the forethought and the leadership to be able to put this together. And now the, the Supreme Court Commission on Children's Courts is really picking it up and running with it and, and working towards really establishing this as something that will be um, have some staying power going forward. Yeah. The other thing, which is, and any number of the attorneys that I've worked with, um, when you're, for attorneys that get to work in tribal court, you get to do stuff that you might not be able to get to do at state court. I mean, when I was public defender, I was I was a, just a little baby lawyer, and I was handling jury trials, and I was managing a full caseload docket, mm -hmm. and I was getting to do all the stuff that I would otherwise do. One final thing is, you know, I always ask, you got any um, words of wisdom for the young practitioners, and, and you were talking a bit about it there, uh, about getting a chance to, to really get into the practice. Any stumbles along the way that you made that you'd like to shortcut for them? <laughs> I will claim millennial status in that if I can avoid working on something, I'm all about it. <laughs> what I have found is being able to practice law has given me the opportunity to be able to make a substantive and meaningful difference in people's lives that I never would have gotten a chance to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I've happened to be fortunate enough to fall into a circumstance in a way that I can, you know, also pay for groceries, which is nice. Sure. But what I have found is if you start with, maybe this is just the way I look at it, but I have found that if I can find a way to do something that's meaningful, that gives me an opportunity to use the skills that I have to make other people's lives better, yeah. that's, you know, that's the baseline. You know, you start with that and there's tons of opportunities to do that. The one thing I wish I would have known earlier in my legal career is how important it is to make friends, to get to know people, to get people to know you. Right. Um, I the Omaha Bar Association, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, I mean, you're self-serving, and I really sure. appreciate that about you. Uh, we did not plan this ahead of time, by the way. Yeah. But it's, it, it really is true. Um, the one thing I didn't know until, I think, later on is you can do the best work that you can do. You can be an amazing lawyer. You can be an amazing uh, advocate. You can be an amazing writer. If you don't make those interpersonal relationships with other people, it doesn't matter because they're not going to notice you in the way they will. It's like, oh, I know that guy. I saw him here. Mm -hmm. um, so I can do this work with him. So I mean, I'm, I'll, you know, I have this opportunity. I'll talk to this person or I'll take that phone call when it comes. So if you are millennial, I'll say the word. <laughs> or if, I mean, if, if you're really anybody, if 
if you have that law license, you have a remarkable opportunity to spend your career doing something that really makes a difference. And there are other people out there that want to help you to do that. Yeah. Find them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we've run out of time. The registration for golf starting and people are filing in. So we're going to cut it here. Uh, thanks so much, Patrick. Appreciate it. And thanks good luck me. on the course today. Thanks. <laughs>